0: Folks, Welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode, I talk about the sudden death of basketball legend Kobe Bryant, his accomplishments, but also the credible accusation of rape from 2003. I discuss what we can do in the aftermath of the loss of someone who is well known and admired. And finally, I offer some insights about the black church inspired By comments from a comedian. But first, some announcements. Just a heads up about audio quality. I'm on the road and I don't have my regular recording equipment. In fact, I'm actually in a hotel room with some improvised soundproofing that includes pillows and towels and blankets. Uh, But that's just a heads up in case things sound a bit different this go around. Also, The Color of Compromise, my first book, is now out as a video study. It is a 12-part series. Each of the videos is about 20 minutes long. It is available on DVD, or you can stream it on Amazon Prime, because who actually has a DVD player these days? So anyway, it's... um you can just search for it on Amazon Prime Video. It's pretty cool to see your name on a platform like that where I know I've watched a whole lot of shows. Uh, but you can download the Color of Compromise video study for streaming or buy it on DVD on, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's a great way to do book studies. Yeah, so that's that's out. Also want to remind you about the Witness Foundation. We are raising a million dollars to start an endowment to financially support black Christian ministries. So if you want to do something tangible about racial justice, this is one way to do it. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co to learn more about our vision and mission. You can also donate there, give a one-time gift, or set up a recurring donation. Also want to remind you about my other podcast, Pass the Mic. I co-host with Tyler Burns and we started a new series Can I get a witness. I think of it I think it's some of our best work. I'm sure you'll want to tune in um and we'll be consistent. We guarantee it. So week by week we'll be there with you. So go check out Pass the Mic, subscribe, rate, review. And speaking of reviews, It's time for one of my favorite segments where I read your comments and reviews. Listen, we're up to 258 reviews, and that is an increase from 244 from the last episode. That's amazing. Y'all are phenomenal. Look, that many reviews for a new podcast, I think is great. I mean, check out some of your favorite podcasts. There's like two extremes. They're either in the thousands or there's like 10. So, 258 reviews is a great start. Let's keep them going. This one comes from e. McNeff, e. McNeff, and this person says, I needed more thoughtful engagement with the culture in my life, and Jamar has a great perspective to bring to light many of the complexities that aren't mentioned in most circles. If this kind of commentary could make its way into the church at large, then we will see... A trajectory aligning more closely with God's heart for his people. Thank you, Jamar. Well, thank you. That was a very kind word, very kind review, and I would love to hear from you. So remember to subscribe, rate, and review Footnotes. All right. So this episode is all about Kobe Bryant. Kobe, the Black Mamba. And it's a really sad one, but we got to talk about it. So here we go. Basketball legend Kobe Bryant unexpectedly died in a helicopter crash on Sunday, January 26th. Bryant's 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, John Altobelli, who's 56, his daughter, Alyssa Altobelli, and his wife, Carrie Altobelli, along with Christina Mauser, Sarah Chester, her daughter, Peyton, and the pilot, Era Zobayan, also perished in the crash. That's a total of nine people. Now, I can't remember exactly where I was or what I was doing when I heard the news, but I remember how I felt. I first learned about it because I saw the push announcement on my phone, and it only popped up for a second, but it was long enough for me to see the writing, Kobe Bryant dead in a helicopter crash. And I remember I audibly yelled out, No! My stomach dropped to my feet, sort of like the feeling when you're going down the biggest hill of a roller coaster. And I scrambled to pull the announcement back up and read more about the story. And for those few seconds when I'm finding the article, I'm hoping that I misread it, that what I thought I saw wasn't really what I saw. But I wasn't wrong. Kobe was dead, along with his precious daughter, Gigi and seven other passengers. So, I mean, I think by now almost everyone has read or heard about the details of the crash. I won't go into detail here. Um, It appears that weather played a factor. I wanna move on from the details of the crash and I wanna talk first about Kobe as a basketball player and then about Kobe as an alleged rapist. So I know that this topic is really, really personal for some people. And, um, we have survivors who may be listening. So just want to give you a heads up that, um, these, these allegations of rape will, will come up here. But starting with Kobe, the basketball player, he's one of those rare figures who transcended the game. He represented the game. He defined the game for a generation or more of fans and aspiring pro athletes, right? Like when people are doing a fadeaway jump shot, uh with a a balled up piece of paper toward the garbage can what do you yell kobe and i remember being uh, i think it was in high school when kobe became pro but we had known about him for a little bit longer than that because he was a phenom in high school i remember people going and getting his jersey and wearing lakers starter jackets i mean it was it was a big big thing a big part of of my growing up and this is uh he was you know taking the mantle supposedly of michael jordan as the as the guy to watch and resembled jordan in a lot of his mannerisms and style i'm not even that huge of a pro basketball fan certainly not like some others but i knew kobe um in in as a fan (laughs) i never met him but uh you know i knew of him just like so many others and so his death you know really feels personal in a way. But as a basketball player, um, again, he's a young phenom, started playing right out of high school in 1996. He was the youngest player ever to play in an all-star game at just 19 years old. At 37 years old, he was the youngest player to reach 33,000 points in his career. He played 20 years with the same team, the LA Lakers. And was a five-time NBA champion with that team. A lot of folks will remember that game in 2006 against the Raptors. uh, He scored 81 points in that game, 81 points. And that's second only to Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. Um, Kobe also led the NBA in missed shots six times during his career. Um, He was an 11-time first-team All-NBA selection, which is tied for the best, and is an Olympic gold medalist. Two gold medals with the USA basketball team in the Olympics. Again, he transcended the game. He's a lock for the Hall of Fame. And his second act post-basketball was just beginning. He was known to be an attentive father to his kids. Uh, Gigi was like his doppelganger on the court, according to reports. Uh, Kobe Bryant was a huge advocate for Uh, the WNBA Women's National Basketball Association. And so there's a lot to him. Like I said before, you know, even if you've never met Kobe, it's almost like you grew up with him. You certainly knew about him. And then to follow his exploits on the court, uh, it was just, you know, it was electric to watch sometimes. And when the Lakers had their run at NBA championships, whether you loved him or hate him, all eyes were on them. So that that sudden death of this superstar feels very personal for a lot of us. Um, But there's another side beyond the court. There's a disturbing legacy that we have to acknowledge and come to grips with when it comes to Kobe. And so in 2003, Kobe was charged with the sexual assault of a 19 year old woman at a hotel in Eagle County, Colorado. And as another writer said, uh, to put it plainly, Kobe Bryant was credibly accused of rape. You know, instead of just saying an incident or it's complicated, you know, name it. And as is typically the case, his celebrity status made this case hit the headlines for weeks, if not months. Um This woman, his accuser had her identity leaked. She endured a year and a half of a, of harassment by Kobe supporters and trolls, and she endured this uphill battle of trying to get a conviction of, of uh, trying to get a conviction in a rape case in general is hard to do, but of a celebrity that 's even harder to do so ultimately she declined to testify. And uh, they dropped the case. And who could blame her? I mean, there was a whole lot of victim shaming and blaming when this was going on. And so it was simply an ordeal she didn't want to go through. Although the case did go to civil court and they settled for an undisclosed amount. And to this day, she's still under a nondisclosure agreement. But this allegation of rape, it remains forever a glaring hole In Kobe's record and character in an apology at the time, Bryant said this, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. And so, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a pretty revealing statement coming from Kobe Bryant about this case. My friend Bradford William Davis wrote an article for the New York Daily News. You should check it out. I've got the link in the show notes. But he interviewed people involved with the case, lawyers and whatnot. And one of them said that the case and how the woman was treated, quote, momentarily changed how vic- how victims responded to their alleged assaults. And this lawyer in the case says, in Eagle in Eagle County, we saw a huge decrease in sex assault reporting. And when victims would talk to advocates, they would say that it was because they were going to be treated like the victim in Kobe Bryant's case. And in fact, the number of forcible rapes reported in that county dropped by 10 percent in 2003 from the previous year. And so, you know, victims saw how um, Kobe Bryant's accuser was treated, said, I don't want to go through that and didn't even report these crimes. Uh, so so it had a had a dramatic impact on the way victims and survivors um, approached what happened to them and and how they should deal with it. And so all of this begs the question. How should we remember otherwise beloved figures who have done or been accused of reprehensible actions and. How soon is too soon? So we can think of other people like Bill Cosby, R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, now Kobe Bryant. Do we act as if a certain level of fame or incredible talent exempts a person from scrutiny? I mean, I think intellectually, none of us would say that or at least admit it. But functionally, isn't that how we act sometimes? Even now, we're, we're hesitant to talk about this rape case. We're not talking about how Kobe's accuser might be feeling. And reacting not only to the superstar's death, but to all the adulation and and the love being poured out to him now. And so Lindsay Gibbs, who wrote an article in 2016 called The Legacy of Kobe Bryant's Rape Case, said in a recent interview, I think ignoring it just makes survivors from all communities feel more shame, feel more confused, and feel like they're not a part of our culture or society. Gibbs went on to say, victims everywhere are watching. Survivors in your life right now are listening to this and reading this and hearing all the dismissals. And it's tough because I hear a lot of people from the black community say, don't tell us how to feel. You hear people in the women's basketball community who he meant so much to say, don't tell us how to feel. And then Gibbs continued, But the fact is, there are survivors in all of these communities. Survivors aren't in a community all to themselves. They're part of all these other communities. And so I think that's a good perspective, that we also need to keep victims in mind, as even as we remember those who recently passed away. Now, of course, we want to keep Kobe's wife, Vanessa, and her remaining children in mind. But we've got to be able to do more than one thing at the same time. We have to appreciate Kobe's accomplishments on the court and acknowledge the fact that he perhaps committed a heinous crime. And we got to remember how this might be affecting his accuser as well as his family. So it's tough. It's tough, of course, but I think we should be very careful about saying it's too soon to talk about a person's faults after they die. We know, we know no one is perfect. And if we're centering the victims, then we should be very sensitive about how we praise the person who has passed, knowing that all those glowing comments, well, they hit different if you've been hurt by the person in question. So, is it too soon to talk about Kobe's rape case? Is it insensitive to bring it up now so close to his death while so many people are mourning? Well, um, that's certainly the sentiment on social media. So a Washington Post reporter named Felicia Sanmez was placed on administrative leave for the tweets that she posted about Kobe's sexual assault allegations just hours after his death had been announced. And the reason for her suspension was that it was a lack of judgment it showed a lack of restraint in a situ- in a sensitive situation, uh, according to her bosses um, Sanmez was later reinstated, but hers is a classic question of when is too soon to talk about a celebrity's failings after her or his death. Now, this is not nearly the same situation in terms of a crime that I'm about to bring up, but I remember. After the evangelist Billy Graham died in 2018, there was this outpouring of gratitude for his life and ministry, which makes sense, right? I mean, he was 99 years old, had done so many things, uh, had been the face of white evangelicalism for half a century. But there was also a narrative starting to emerge that he was some kind of racial progressive. Um, you know, people were pointing out that that he had, you know... Uh, invited King to one of his rallies, that he had taken down the ropes that separated black and white people at his crusades, all of this stuff. But when I pointed out that this didn't actually make Graham like a civil rights activist or anything, and that Graham would have most likely fit into the uh, white moderate category that Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, I got accused of not respecting the dead and of having this conversation too soon. Now, in this case, I was just trying to correct what I saw as a false narrative. So it's not a subject I probably would have even volunteered to talk about, but what others were saying pressed the need. And that's the concern. If we don't bring up a person's negative legacy, or in this case, a potential crime, then we risk falling into hagiography. Hagiography is making a human being with shortcomings, failures, and even crimes— into an unassailable saint whose actions are almost never questioned and whose memory is so sacrosanct that people cannot bring up anything bad about the person. I mean, it's the way some people think about Martin Luther King Jr. or others think about Ronald Reagan or Billy Graham. I mean, you can go down the list, right? So how soon is too soon? I don't think there's one simple answer for this. Um, there are a lot of circumstances. It depends on the person who's died, what they've done or haven't done, and the person who wants to make a comment. What are their motivations? Because there are certainly some trolls out there who, um, either just want to be mean or, uh, they, they are looking for some sort of profit or benefit off of trashing the dead, whether it's a retweet or a like or, you know, some, some sort of attention from it. And so there's, there's some, there's some variables here. But by all accounts, it seems like Kobe spent the rest of his life trying to be a better man. It appeared that he was a loving father to his girls and husband to his wife. Does that record make any difference? Well, whatever your thoughts on the matter, I can't help feeling the way I feel. I feel sad. Very sad. Um, so sad that I dread looking at the news and social media Just when the event has moved sort of in the back of my mind, so I can focus on another thing. I come across another picture, a statement, an article pops up. I remember again what happened, and then I feel again, and it sucks. It's really sad. But as we think about sort of the totality of a person's life, it's very theological, actually. So these tragic and unexpected deaths bring to mind the doctrine of the fallenness of humankind, that even death itself is a result of things not being the way they're supposed to be. Remembering people rightly is hard. We want to highlight their good actions and their love for people in their lives while also realistically acknowledging that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as the Bible says. And we do this with humility, knowing that one day we too will be remembered. We know, if we're honest with ourselves, that there are flaws, shortcomings, crimes in our lives that people are going to have to reckon with as they remember us. And we think about others with humility too, because ultimately we have to give an account not just to each other, but to the God who judges us according to his perfect and righteous standard. And so thank God for Jesus, that his sacrifice gives us hope and forgiveness and reconciliation when we put our faith in him. I think we're going to be processing this for a long time. Uh, this journey of grief and remembrance, it is just that. It's a journey. So give yourself time and space to feel the way you feel. Don't forget uh, uh, the allegations of rape. If we don't reckon with that, then we haven't really reckoned with the full humanity and totality of of Kobe Bryant, Uh, nor have we given proper respect, I think, to the victim and people in other similar situations, but for all of us, you know, love and prayers to everyone affected by this abrupt death of Kobe Bryant. Live every day like it's your last? Question mark. Uh, So one final thought on Kobe Bryant's death and those aboard the helicopter with him. So after a death, a lot of people say live every day like it's your last. And I get it. When we say this, we mean savor and live every day to the fullest. As if you only had one day to live. Don't hold back. Appreciate every moment. Tell the people you love that you love them take advantage of every opportunity, stop wasting time worrying, all of the stuff we might do if we knew how to number our days. But there's a problem with that. It requires almost constant mindfulness to live every day like it's our last. A mindfulness that we can keep up for a little while or in a few moments or at specific times, but it's certainly not something we can do all day every day. So I wrote an article the day after uh, Bryant's death was announced, and it's called, You Probably Can't Live Every Day Like It's Your Last, But Here's What You Can Do. And you can find this article on The Witness, bcc.com, and it's also in the show notes. And in that article, I said that in the wake of such a tragedy, many people reflect on the brevity and unpredictability of life. One of the most common refrains in times of grave loss is live every day like it's your last. But there's a problem with that. Practically speaking, we're not entering the car each day saying to ourselves, this could be my last car ride. And we don't go into every staff meeting saying, this could be the last staff meeting of my life. And we don't go to the grocery store, or stop for gas, or do most of the mundane task of life consciously thinking, that it might be our final day taking a breath. But if we can't live every day like like it's our last, then what can we do to appreciate this gift called life? Um Well, I think we can reorder our priorities. We can live in such a way that we're giving time, attention, and appreciation to the things that we say we really value. And so for most of us, that's going to focus around relationships, I think. Our relationship with God, our family, close friends, we want to make time for people, for creating memories with others, for showing and telling the people in our lives how much they mean to us. What those priorities probably don't include, more time on social media, working more hours, watching Netflix. I mean, not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but a lot of time, what we spend our time on is not our priorities or the things that we say are important to us. In order to do that, we have to be intentional. So one of the things I'm doing to be intentional about my pro- priorities is traveling a lot more to see my family. Um, we live far away from both my wife's side of the family and my side of the family. So we've scheduled three trips so far to see them just this spring. And it's really expensive and really time consuming. But On the other hand, I'm sure I won't regret spending money on gas or taking a few days here and there to see family and the friends we still have in those areas. And for you, it may be different. It might be calling an old friend or handwriting them a letter. People actually still do that. It could be restoring a broken relationship. It could be getting to know yourself more by journaling or going to therapy, knowing that you have to heal And come to grips with who and where you are right now in order to productively move forward in your life. And so the point is this. We should strive to order our priorities in such a way that our daily living is oriented around our values. And by doing that, we can know we've spent our days well. We may not be able to literally live every day as if it's our last, but we can prioritize people and relationships so that we live each day with maximum meaning and minimum regret. And now, the unfortunately named segment called Tizbits. So this thought came to me in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, while I was watching a video by Kev on Stage. If you don't know who Kev on Stage is, I'm not sure how you found this podcast. I'm not even sure we can be friends. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. But do I really have to explain who he is? He's a comedian. He's one of the premier comedians of our day. He posts videos on social media. He's done tours around the country. We even interviewed him on Pass the Mic a while back, so you can search for that episode. But in this video, he was doing a comedic but actually insightful commentary about a statement that the actor David Schwimmer recently made. And you remember Schwimmer? He played Ross on the hit TV show Friends. Well, Schwimmer said that they should do a Friends reboot, but this time with an all-Black or an all-Asian cast. Black folks, you already know. So, Kev on stage, he broke it down for Schwimmer. He talked about this idea for a show. It would be similar to Friends. It would take place in Brooklyn. It would have an all-Black cast, four girls, two guys, They'd be navigating friendships, romantic relationships, and career as 20-somethings. Kev even workshopped a name. He said you could call it Living Single. It could have a theme song, something like, We are living single. Ooh, in a 90s kind of world, I'm glad I've got my girls. You know, something like that. Of course, (laughs) that show already exists. It is, in fact, called Living Single. Not only is it an excellent show, it came out a year before, friends. As Kev on stage said, it's not a reboot, it's a preboot." Then Kev ended the segment with a short but really insightful statement. He said about black people and black entertainment, it's like we're there, but we're not really there. It's like we're there, but not really there. And that got me thinking. Isn't there a similar dynamic between the white church and the black church? A lot of times as black Christians, it feels like we're there, but we're not really there. I mean, think about all these conversations about race and justice and the go- gospel. Um, it seems like a lot of white Christians are just now realizing this is an issue. but and, and so now there are conferences and articles and conversations about the topic. But when you look at the black church tradition, we've been having these conversations forever, And then white Christians come out with books and events to tackle the topic instead of looking right next to them at the black churches and organizations that are already doing the work. It's the same with church planting. How many churches have been planted in, quote unquote, the hood, which is now gentrifying, by the way, because there were supposedly no gospel preaching Bible believing churches in the area. And these folks, you know, they come into a neighborhood and they either totally ignored or totally discounted. The black churches that had been doing ministry in those areas for decades. It's like we're there, but we're not really there. And what about this focus on white evangelical support for Trump? Now, don't get me wrong. (laughs) You know, I've done my fair share of commenting about this phenomenon. But what about the political views and perspectives of black Christians? They get very little airtime comparatively. And when white Christians try to make sense of the political landscape and figure out how to vote or how to think through issues, I don't know. I mean, I'd be surprised if very many look to, uh, black Christians such as Clementa Pink- Pinckney, who served in elected office before he was killed in the Emanuel Nine massacre. Uh, what about people like John Lewis and Elijah Cummings and Bernice King? Are we learning from these women and men? who are involved in the public sphere, how they're thinking through issues of faith and justice and voting. I mean, it's like we're there, but we're not really there. And I'll be real, real honest with you because, well, you committed to listening to this podcast and you made it all the way to this point in the episode. Um, When we changed our name from the Reformed African American Network, or RAN, to The Witness, a black Christian collective, we took a hit in a lot of ways. And so we went from getting tons of attention, getting invitations to exhibit at or even speak at conferences, invitations to write for white Christian publications. We had a voice among the broader white Christian community. We went from all that to becoming almost a non-entity for some of those same folks. For black Christians, it's like unless you're interacting with or critiquing white Christians, you barely exist in their consciousness. It's like we're there. But we're not really there. It's all good, though. Uh, at The Witness, we made a principled decision that in order to speak and teach freely, we had to divest ourselves from dependence on the largesse and fickle opinion of many white Christians and organizations. Black Christians are here, regardless of whether white Christians acknowledge us. Our significance comes from Christ, not from what white Christians do or don't know about us. We may be not there to some, but we are there to God. That's it for this week. Remember to support The Witness Foundation. Visit thewitnessfoundation.co and help us raise a million dollars for Black Christian ministry. Like my author page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash JamarTisby1, the number one. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, at Jamar Tisby. Remember, you can contact me via email at footnotespod1 at gmail. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Boy York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out the witnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes.